Okay. <clears throat> a young boy by the name of James <clears throat> had a desire to be the most famous cheesemaker in the world. He planned on becoming rich by making and selling cheese, and he began with a little wagon pulled by a pony named Patty. After making his cheese, he would load up his wagon, and he and Patty would go up and down the streets of Chicago to sell the cheese. But as the months passed, the young boy began to despair because he was not making any money in spite of his long hours and hard work. One day, he pulled his pony to a stop and began to talk to him. He said, Patty, there is something wrong. We're not doing it right. I'm afraid we have things turned around and our focus is not where it ought to be. Maybe we should focus on serving God and putting Him first in our lives. The boy went home and made a promise that for the rest of his life, he would first serve God. Many years later, the young boy, now a man, stood as the Sunday school superintendent at the North Shore Baptist Church in Chicago. And he said, I would rather be a layman in the North Shore Baptist Church than to head the greatest corporation in America. My first job is serving Jesus. So, <clears throat> every time you take a bite of Philadelphia cream cheese, sip a cup of Maxwell House coffee, mix a quart of Kool-Aid, pick through a Lunchable, cook a pot of macaroni and cheese, spread some gray poupon, snack on some corn nuts, slurp down some jello, or nibble on a Chips Ahoy chocolate chip cookie. Remember a boy, his pony named Patty, and the promise little James L. Craft made to serve God and follow as he directed. Like James L. Craft, we are going to focus on what we are to focus on. Thus far, we have covered the first four chapters of Esther. And to get everybody caught up, I want to provide a recap before we venture on. If you remember, 
long before the story of Esther, the Jews had been in exile in Babylon for 70 long years until the Babylonians were later overpowered by the Medes and Persians who were under the rule of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was the king of the Persian Empire. And he became sympathetic towards the Jewish people who had been in exile for such a long time. And so he permitted the Jews to return to their homeland to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and their temple. Over time, three groups of Jews made the journey back to the promised land, to Judah. But surprisingly, many of the Jews chose to remain in a foreign land. They seemed content to stay right where they were. After King Cyrus and after his son King Darius, we are now in the reign of King Ahasuerus, the grandson of Cyrus, the son of Darius. Ahasuerus ruled everything from India to Ethiopia, but he had his sights on conquering Greece. So after the invasion planning was completed, Ahasuerus threw a big party at the palace to celebrate. During this party, which turned into a party full of drunks, the king commanded that his wife, Queen Vashti, be brought out so she could parade herself in front of the guests. She refused. And the king looked really bad in front of his guests. So under the advice of his counselors, who were likely also drunk, it was decided that Vashti would be stripped of her crown and kicked to the curb. Approximately three years go by. After the failed invasion of Greece, and King Ahasuerus is back at his palace moping around in depression, he misses Vashti. And those closest to him take notice of it. So they devise a plan to cheer him up. Their plan? Let's have a Miss Persia beauty contest to determine who the new queen will be. And from this contest, an orphaned Jewish girl who was raised by her older cousin named Mordecai was chosen to be the new queen. Her Persian name was Esther. And as commanded by Mordecai, she told no one she was Jewish. Esther is the queen 
and Mordecai held some kind of official position at the king's gate. The king's gate was a place outside the palace where people frequently passed in and out. And as such, it became a hub of activity where people met and where business, all kinds of business, was conducted. One day, while at the king's gate, Mordecai learned of an assassination plot against the king. And so he tells Queen Esther, and she alerts the king. Well, after an investigation, it was determined that the plot was true, and the culprits were executed. But poor Mordecai was forgotten. He had saved the king's life, but he wasn't recognized or rewarded in any way. Instead, this guy named Haman comes out of nowhere and he is exalted to the number two position in the Persian Empire. And by the command of the king, everyone was to bow before Haman as a sign of respect. That's what the king commanded. And that's what everyone did. Well, almost everyone. There is one stubborn holdout. It's Mordecai. And he has no respect for Haman. If you recall their family history, Mordecai was a Jew. And Haman was an Agagite, a descendant of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were the mortal enemies of the Jews, starting as far back as the Exodus. And Mordecai could not bow before this man, before this Amalekite. Well, Mordecai's disrespect is eventually reported to Haman. And Haman is told that Mordecai is a Jew. And the red hot flames of hatred are reignited. It becomes personal. And Haman is determined to kill Mordecai. But not just Mordecai. He wants to exterminate all the Jews under the rule of the Persian Empire, which would also include the Jews living in the Promised Land. So Haman hatches an evil plot. And he gets the king's permission to assassinate a certain people. He only described as different and rebellious. The king blindly trusted Haman. He asked nothing about these certain people. And foolishly 
the king told Haman he could do with these people as he wanted. And then the king gave his signet ring to Haman. With the ring in hand, Haman summons the royal scribes and they write out the extermination order against the Jews. Haman stamps the seal on the order with the king's ring and it becomes official. It's law. On one day, 11 months away, all the people in the empire would be allowed to murder the Jews. The extermination order was sent out in advance. It was a public notice. So all the people would know what is about to come. Mordecai learns of the extermination order. And he's beside himself. He's grief stricken. He puts on sackcloth and he covers himself in ashes as a sign of great sorrow and distress. He's he's loudly wailing for all to hear, doing all of this as he makes his way to the city square, which is just in front of the king's gate. Now, Queen Esther lives in pampered seclusion, and she knows nothing about this extermination order against the Jews. However, She is told that Mordecai is making a spectacle of himself in the city square. This troubles Esther, and she hopes he will stop for his own sake, but he doesn't. So she sends out a messenger to Mordecai to find out what's happening. And through this messenger, she learns about the extermination order of the Jews. That's why Mordecai is so upset. And he tells Esther to go to the king and plead for mercy for her people. But there's a problem with that. Even though the king is her husband, Esther can't approach him without a personal invitation. That's the law of the land, a law that everyone knows, and to approach the king uninvited will result in instant death unless the king extends his golden scepter to grant life. And to make matters worse, Queen Esther hasn't seen the king in 30 days. So she doesn't understand or doesn't know where she stands with the king. And all of this is relayed to Mordecai. And he sends a message back to her. And he says, Esther, you are the right person in the right place 
at the right moment to do the right thing. Esther, God made you the queen for such a time as this. It's not a coincidence that you, an orphaned Jewish girl, is in the palace. Now when we left off last week, Esther called the Jews to a fast and to pray for her for three days. And then no matter what, she would do the right thing, place her life in jeopardy and plead for her people. Esther had come to that place where she surrendered her life to God, leaving the results in His hands. So now that you are all caught up, and that was a lot, we come to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 1. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. After three days of fasting and prayer, waiting on the Lord for courage and for clarity, Queen Esther puts on her royal robes and walks down the hall toward the king's throne room. Esther has not been summoned by the king. She's uninvited. And she has no idea what the king will do to her. Now as a reminder, God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. Not one single time. But he's clearly working behind the scenes. Even with this king. We're told in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. In other words, God can handle this king. And unbeknownst to Esther like shaping the banks of a river to change the flow of water. The invisible hand of God is at work in the heart of this king. Arranging the circumstances in Esther's favor. And we are told, beginning with verse 2, when the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court 
she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. When the king sees Esther standing in the court, he extends his golden scepter to her, which is his way of saying, come on in. Esther had no idea what would happen to her. She could have been killed on the spot. She could have been stripped of her crown and kicked to the curb just like the last queen. But here the king invites her in and says, What's troubling you, Queen Esther? In fact, he goes further and says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, which seems to be a common expression of kings, which means, what can I do for you? Just name it. Esther replies, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Just so you know, in that culture, banquets were a common setting for discussing serious matters. And once the meal was finished and after some wine, then important issues would be discussed. So Esther is following the proper custom with her request. And in her request, she also asks that the king bring Haman along as well. And that leads us to verses 5 through 8. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition for it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, May the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king says. So Queen Esther, King Ahasuerus, 
and Haman attend this private banquet. But the king still does not know what's troubling Esther. And so he asks her again, what's troubling you? Now it's here that Esther seems to pause for a moment. And then she says to the king, there is something I do want to say to you. But I want to wait until tomorrow, if that's okay. After another banquet with you too, then I will tell you. Now this is very important for Esther. It's an important moment for her. She's focused on her mission. She's focused on what she needs to do. She's ready to drop the bomb on Haman. But at the same time, she's sensitive to God's leading. She understands that timing is just as important as action. And she's keenly aware of what's going on around her. And for whatever reason, Esther realizes this isn't the right time nor the right place to point a finger at Haman. And instead of jumping ahead of the Lord and doing something rash or saying something she will regret, she waits. And as we will learn next week, God's perfect timing just required one more day. Then we come to the last portion of this chapter, beginning with verse 9. I love this portion. And we are told, Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and the servants of the king. Haman also said, even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which he had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. 
yet. That's a big word there. Yet. All of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. As Haman leaves the banquet on a huge ego trip, bursting with pride with an invitation to another banquet, once again he goes through the king's gate and once again he sees Mordecai. That stubborn, disrespectful Jew who now won't even give him the time of day. Haman is livid over this disrespect, but he maintains his composure and makes his way home. At home with his family and friends around him, Haman gloats over himself talking about his power and his prestige and his possessions. He's the number two man in the entire Persian Empire. He has everything he could ever want. Even the beautiful Queen Esther seems to like him. But there's this one guy this one guy who makes his blood boil. Mordecai. Haman is fixated on him. And he tells his family and friends in so many words, I'm great, as you all know. I'm great, as you all know, but I can't even enjoy my greatness. Because all I think about is this one guy who disrespects me. Yes, I have everything that life has to offer, and then some. But nothing nothing will satisfy me. And I mean nothing as long as this guy is still in the picture. Haman is trapped in tunnel vision where the only thing that matters to him is this one guy he hates. He's on top of the world, blessed beyond measure. And yet, this fixation with Mordecai consumes him. It poisons him. It robs him of any satisfaction and joy in his life. And it can do the same to us. If we are not careful, we can fall into the same tunnel vision trap as Haman. 
we too can become so fixated and stuck on certain people, on certain issues, on certain experiences, on certain problems, that we can lose sight of God. We can get distracted from our purpose. We can become blinded to His blessings. And our thoughts can turn to poison. Several years ago, my uh, wife and I went up to Canada to serve as chaperones with a bunch of teenagers who were putting on a vacation Bible school. During one of the evenings, I was in a large room with uh, the teenage boys. I was trying to sleep. But they wanted to talk. They wanted to talk with me. And the conversation turned to the topic of girls. It's like, oh Jesus, take the will. These boys told me that their thoughts about girls were not the kind of thoughts that were pleasing to God. They knew their thoughts were sinful. And they wanted some insight from me. You've got to be kidding me. I told them that the Bible teaches we are to renew our minds. Replacing bad thoughts with good thoughts. And then I gave them an exercise to, to illustrate my point. I said to them, think really, really hard about the number five. Think really hard about the number five. I paused for a moment. I could see I could see it percolating in their heads. And then I said after a few moments, "Okay. Stop thinking about that number. No longer think about the number 5." I could see him straining. And I asked them, so, what are you thinking about? And they responded, the number five. They couldn't get the number out of their heads. And I expected that. So then I said, take the number five, multiply it by four, I can see them thinking. They're teenagers. Now divide that by two. So I asked them, what number are you thinking about? And they said, ten. 
removing the number five from their minds would be hard. But replacing the number five with another number was so much easier. All I did was redirect their thinking. Now I thought, I assumed that they had learned their lesson. I thought they had got my illustration until the next day I was approached by the director of the Vacation Bible School. And she asked me, what was I teaching these boys? And I asked her, why did she want to know? And she said, she took the boys to a mall. And as the boys walked through the mall, all they were doing was reciting math equations. <laughs> My point is this. If you find yourself in this poisonous fixation that robs you of your joy and your satisfaction in life, redirect your thinking. And do what the Apostle Paul tells us to do. He says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence... And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the, and the God of peace will be with you. Simply put, Renew your mind by replacing your trash with God's treasure. Day by day, saturate your minds with the truths found in God's Word so that the Spirit of God can transform your way of thinking. Okay. We aren't done with Haman just yet. For he needs some advice. And in verse 14, he gets it. We are told. Then Zeresh's wife and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows 50 cubits high made. And in the morning, ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman. And so the and so the gallows he had the gallows made. Apparently Haman is married to a real sweet lady. And she tells him, Honey, I know this must be hard for you. I know. So how about you put up a sharp wooden stake about 75 feet high 
so everyone can see it. Then tomorrow morning, go to the king and have Mordecai impaled on it. After that, you can go to the banquet and enjoy yourself. How does that sound? Well, it sounded really great to Haman. So he got a work crew right on it so it would be ready in the morning. Seemingly, everything is going Haman's way. The Jews whom he hated were going to be exterminated in a matter of months. But even better yet, Mordecai will die tomorrow. Or so he thinks. For he doesn't realize that there is a God working behind the scenes. Working behind what is seen on behalf of his people. God did it then and God does it now. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this uh, this time in your word. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you, Lord God, that you are patient with us. That you are abundantly gracious. You are merciful. And you are forgiving. Even though we are not faithful, you are. Father, draw us to yourself. Help us to be the kind of people you desire us to be. Help us to have the kind of thoughts that are pleasing to you. And Father, help us to hang on every word spoken by you. May you be honored and glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you are here this morning. And you realize, just like Haman, you are satisfied with nothing. Your thoughts are consumed on something or someone. And this fixation has poisoned you. If you are a believer, if you are a Christian, I would encourage you to renew your mind by saturating yourself with the truths found in God's Word. Replace your thoughts with His words. Now maybe you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
in that case, ultimately, nothing will satisfy you. Only Jesus Christ can satisfy. He desires a relationship with you more than you could ever know. And He wants to satisfy you with the life only He can give. God has a purpose. His purpose is that we would all have eternal life. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That tells us about God's purpose. His purpose is that we would have life. And that life, I could describe in two ways. First, that life means we can have a full and meaningful and abundant life in the here and now. But when we die, we can also be with Jesus. That's His purpose. That's what He desires. But we got a problem. And our problem is sin. We have rebelled against God. The Bible says there are none who are righteous. Not one. Not even one. And the wages of sin, in other words, all we can earn is death. God has a purpose but we have a problem and we are all sinners by nature and by choice. But God had a remedy. And His remedy was Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through Me. Jesus took the penalty of our sin upon Himself. He paid it all. He paid it all so that we might experience God's purpose. God has a purpose. We have a problem. God had a remedy who's Jesus Christ, and we have a response. We repent of our sin. We turn from our ways and we turn toward Him. We place our faith in Jesus, trusting that He will do what He says. Trusting He is the Lord of lords and King of kings and that His payment on the cross was more than enough. And then we surrender to Him as Lord. The Apostle Paul tells us, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. 
That's a promise. That's a promise. Maybe you are here this morning and you've never invited Christ into your life. I would love to pray with you this morning. I would love to share with you this morning. Maybe you're looking for a church home. Or maybe there's something else on your heart you just need prayer for. Whatever the case, I just ask you to respond however the Lord moves you.